Priscilla. Back to room six for KWC Junior. You guys have a great time. We'll see you after service. No greater name than the name of Jesus. Amen? And that's one of the things I definitely want to walk away with today and throughout the, our new series called Anchor. And we'll be taking a study, doing a study of the book of Hebrews. And uh, maybe you saw these in your way in. Maybe you didn't. Uh, but on the table behind the middle row, there is an illustrated uh, overview of the book of Hebrews from the Bible Project. I, I find it very helpful. You can also find the video that goes along with this, a narrated uh, illustration that helps kind of make a little, maybe a little more sense of the drawing. I think the drawing is super helpful, uh, but even more helpful if you'll watch the video and uh, listen to the narration of that. Before we get into the study of Hebrews, we want to take a look at chapter 1 today, but I think before we get into that, it's probably helpful to do a, a quick background on the book of Hebrews so we have a little better idea of who wrote it and why it was written and who it was written to and things along that line. So here's the thing. The book of Hebrews has been called basically the greatest book in the Bible for those that like puzzles because there's a lot of uncertainties that are involved in it. And it begins with who wrote it. And we, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There are, are a lot of speculations about who wrote the book of Hebrews. And, and I'll give you some of the names of who, think, who most scholars think wrote the book of Hebrews. For many, they, they start with Paul. Because Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament and so it kind of makes sense. Well, that's a good place to start. He seemed to like to write. God used him a lot to write letters uh, to churches, to individuals, to groups. So could be Paul. And most of my life, that's where I would have leaned is that Paul wrote it. As I've gotten into the study more deeply, because I've never preached on the whole book of Hebrews, I've preached from Hebrews, but never the whole book of Hebrews. And so in preparation for the study and doing a lot more background information and digging into the book and how it was written and taking other things into consideration, I'm not inclined any longer to think that Paul is the author of the book. And one of the reasons why I don't think Paul is the author of the book is because if you look at his style of writing, in particular, he usually introduces who he's writing it to right at the beginning, and he also says who's writing it. He identifies himself, and he identifies himself as one of the apostles. And as we look into Hebrews, we'll see that the Hebrew writer doesn't, um, doesn't call himself an apostle. He talks about the apostles as if he's not one of the apostles. And so that would be one of the reasons between not identifying as an apostle himself and not even identifying himself, which he did in the other letters that we have uh, in Scripture written by Paul. And he also didn't address the audience to who it was being written to. And so that 
is completely different than what we see in the rest of Paul's writings. There's some other things, but there are more side reasons why I would lean away from Paul at this point. So one of the other ones that, that many would suggest is Barnabas. And some of you uh, maybe remember the name Barnabas, and Barnabas means son of encouragement. And it's certainly possible that Barnabas could have written the book to Hebrews, the, the Hebrews. Quite possible. I personally lean to the third option that many scholars uh, also lean to is the, the top three uh, that are presented as possible authors, and, and that's Apollos. Because of what, how Apollos is described in other places in Scripture and his intellect, and understanding that Hebrews is one of the most complex books in, in, in Scripture, different than pretty much any other book that we read in Scripture, and, and the eloquence of, of it and all of that seems to indicate, although Paul is definitely somebody that was learned, had a, a very high education, but again, what we see here is different than what we see in the rest of his writings. Barnabas, we have a little bit of an idea that he was fairly educated, but Apollo, certainly from Scripture, we see that he was very educated, very well spoken and highly thought of. And so he, I lean that direction. In the end, I don't know. It could be one of the others that have also been suggested. Among them, some think maybe Pris, Priscilla and Aquila co-wrote uh, the, the book of Hebrews. So, some believe Luke wrote not only the, the gospel according to Luke and and Acts, but also wrote Hebrews. Could be. He certainly was educated and, and well-spoken. Some suggest Silas. In the end, we don't know exactly who God used to write this, but a couple things stand out to me. One, I love that it's just a, another indication that God uses a variety of people, how the Holy Spirit uses different one, different individuals' vocabulary and their experiences to present the Word of God. And so God uses, in this case, somebody that seems to have a very high education, very well-spoken, well-thought-out arguments. And then there are other places where we see God use somebody that's, that's not as educated, that uses much more simple terms, somebody that's a lot more like me and just kind of down to earth, not really uh, using, typically not going to use big words, fancy words or anything along that line, but God uses them all. And the, the second thing is that in the end, even though we don't know who actually wrote it, there's no doubt that it's the word of God. And because it's the Word of God, it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Well, what about the audience? Again, unlike Paul's letters, we don't know who exactly it was written to as far as their location and all of that. But we can certainly, we can certainly figure out from the content of the letter that it was written to the Jews. That's why it's titled... Hebrews. Hebrew is another word for Jew. 
And so there's no doubt everybody, every scholar agrees, yet definitely written to the Jews. We don't know exactly uh, what group of Jews, but we know that it was written to the Jews, and it was written somewhere around the, 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 the timeline of 70 A.D. Um, and one of the reasons why we know it was written to the Jews is because of the, the, the use of the Old Testament. Quotes the Old Testament a lot. I mean, a lot. And we'll see that even as we get into chapter 1 today. And the references from the Old Testament definitely skew to a Jewish audience. And so we see that that's the primary audience, but it's always important, just like with Ephesians or Colossians or Philippians, though they were written to specific groups of people at a specific time, we also understand that God's Word is eternal, right? And so what was important for them to know and understand is also important for us to know and understand and for us to apply to our own lives. And so something to keep in mind. Finally, just in the introduction, close with like, why is it, what's the purpose of, of this letter or this book of the Bible? What's the benefit? What do we get out of it? What is the author hoping to accomplish? I think the number one thing that he wants to accomplish is to encourage the Jews that had placed their faith in Jesus to continue to have their faith in Jesus. And so he presents, in my opinion, the strongest argument in all of Scripture about who Jesus is and why Jesus is the name that's above every other name. Why Jesus is greater. And that, secondary to that, that we need to have a radical commitment to him. Because he's awesome and we need to keep the faith because they're going to face persecution. Many believe that they were in a time of persecution. Some say, well, they may not have been personally in persecution, but they were about ready to face persecution. And the Hebrew writer is writing to encourage them to keep the faith. Keep pressing on. This Jesus that you have put your faith in, he's worth keeping your faith in. And not just keep your faith in, but, but press on and become even more determined, radically committed to live for him. It's a letter that provides encouragement and hope. It's an anchor for the soul. So Hebrews chapter 1, if you haven't already turned there, I invite you to and encourage you to turn there now. It's page 846. If you're grabbing a KWC Bible, page 846, we'll begin with verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So we see the word but there, and I've highlighted it for a reason. And that is to show, to indicate that there's a a contrast. There's like a before and an after. This is the way it was. This is the way it is now. And that's what we're going to see in, in detail a lot throughout the, the first half or better of the book of Hebrews. 
a lot of this is the way it was, Old Testament. This is what we have in Jesus. This is who the leader was before. This is who he looked to now. And why Jesus is better. Why Jesus is greater. Now, as he's uh, unlaying and laying out his, his foundational thoughts here, it's important to understand he's going to compare and contrast and come to the conclusion that Jesus is greater. But, by no means is he trying to dismiss any of the others. By no means is he saying, like, the prophets that God had used before aren't important. In fact, what he'll end up doing is pointing back to the prophets and what they spoke and connecting the dots so that we can see that Jesus is who the prophets were pointing to. But just as God had spoken through a variety of people to show his ways and to show his personality, his character, what was going to come, what was going to happen, we see that culminate in the person of Jesus, who the Hebrew writer often will refer to simply as his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. And so there's a lot here, and this is an introduction. I gave an introduction to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, and many scholars actually say into the first part of chapter 2 is just an introduction. And, and many would say that the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon itself. It was a written sermon to the Jews. And in that, like most preachers, there's a, an introduction. Here's what I'm going to talk about. Here's my, my primary premise and some points that I'm going to put out and I'm going to address as we go. And one of those we see right at the bottom here, and through whom also he made the universe. We'll come back to that, but it's important to understand that we see this also in John chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1 as well. And we will come back to that later. The, the big idea to just keep in mind is that nothing that is was made without him. Verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We are going to go after this last part here in the coming weeks, probably next week. Okay? We'll focus more on a word that's used here. Again, the name that he has for Jesus, what he calls Jesus, what he refers to Jesus as, the Son. We're going to really go after that later, but I want you to understand, keep in mind that Jesus is called the Son here. But what I want to focus on right now is the radiance of God's glory. And sometimes this is misunderstood, the radiance of God's glory. And one way that uh, Bible scholars have used to illustrate how this is misunderstood is the, the moon and the sun both give off light, right? Trick question. 
the sun gives off light, what does the moon do? The moon reflects light from the sun. Take you to science class. Some of you like, oh man, I hated that subject. Okay, So the sun has its own light. The S-U-N has its own light where the moon does not. It simply reflects. So some misunderstand that this verse and what it's saying here and, and say, well, Jesus isn't actually God. He just reflects God. We, we, we get to see what God is like in Jesus, but he's not really God. And that's not what this verse is saying. If we, if we really go into the original text, it's the idea, it's the principle, much like the S-U-N gives off its own light, the S-O-N gives off his own glory, the glory of God. He's not a reflection of God, he is God. And that's an important biblical truth that the Hebrew writer is going to continue to go after. Because one of the things that people are likely to do when they fall from the faith, when, when they decide to leave the faith under persecution, is, well, Jesus isn't really God. And we just put him in another box with Somebody that walked the earth, that was a pretty good person, did some pretty good things, had some pretty good ideas, helped some people, but isn't God. And the Hebrew writer wants us to know unequivocally that Jesus is God, that he's the second member of the Trinity. Full on, right from the beginning, this is going to be part of his argument, part of what he wants the reader then and us now to understand, to hold on to. Because if we don't, we don't really have an anchor that will hold when the storms come. Again, the exact representation of his being almost gives the idea, and again, some have taken this, twisted it, or just simply misunderstood it, whether it was intentional or not. I can't always be the judge on that, but certainly question sometimes people's motives and whether or not they're trying to really be authentic with God's word and, and use God's word according to how it's actually written and not just how we want to understand it. But I can also understand how there are times with the way that scripture has been translated, how we can misunderstand, misapply what it says. So the exact representation could, could come across much like we have a couple gentlemen with jerseys on today. And they're called what kind of jerseys? They're, do you know what they're called? Replica jerseys. Why are they called replica jerseys? Because they replicate the real deal. As far as I know, I could be wrong. Maybe you guys have game-worn jerseys. I, I could be wrong. And if I am, my apologies. They look awesome, by the way, but they're replica, right? They're not, they're not the real deal. They, they look like, to, to the naked eye, you couldn't tell the difference. It, it looks like, but it's a, it's a copy of. And so some say, well, Jesus is a copy of God. But that's not what Scripture tells us, is it? 
It's not what Jesus claimed himself. Jesus said in John, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. I and the Father am one. So it's not like a representation. It's not a replica. It's it's the same. It's the exact of the same essence, the same character. We'll keep going. I could go on, but I want you to know the, the biggest point that the author wants us to know. In this chapter, as well as in the coming chapters, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. It doesn't matter what you're going through, Jesus is greater. It doesn't matter who or what you compare him to, Jesus is greater. That's the big idea of Hebrews, ultimately, is Jesus is greater. And it's some really, really good news, folks, to know that Jesus is greater. And so to help people know and to hold on to that truth, he's going to provide some contrasts, some comparisons between Jesus and some others. And he begins in chapter 1 talking about the angels. Verse 4, so he, Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So right from the beginning, we see the contrast between the name of Jesus and the, the name of the angels. The name of the angels, angels basically means messenger, messenger where the name of Jesus essentially means Messiah. In fact, oftentimes in Scripture, we have two names together with Jesus. We either have Christ Jesus or Jesus the Christ. Christ is another word for Messiah, so keep that in mind. But also, the name Jesus means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. So, we have one that is a messenger. We have another that is the Messiah. We have angels whose name means that they deliver on behalf of God. They deliver a message on behalf of God, where the Messiah delivers people from their sins because he's God. We keep going. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And so we see the second thing that the Hebrew writer is helping us to see in this comparison and contrast between the angels and Jesus. How do they relate to God? Well, angels relate to God as servants. Jesus relates to God as his son. Now again, admittedly, the Bible uses some language that can be confusing and and in a sense even misleading on the surface. And especially if we don't take the full context of Scripture into view. 
especially with our own limited understanding, or at least I'll speak for myself, I have a limited understanding. Limited understanding from training, limited understanding as far as experience and all of that. But there's going to be, it, I have my limits. And some of you just want to say, amen, pastor. But we'll see in a moment that Jesus is called firstborn. And the word firstborn especially can be as extremely misleading when it comes to Jesus because when we think of Jesus in the the relationship we think of human speaking right firstborn so in my case I am the firstborn of Leon Wyatt but when we talk about me being the firstborn of Leon Wyatt and Jesus being the firstborn of God they are not apples and apples My father pre-existed me by almost 30 years. God the Father did not pre-exist the Son. They are one in the same as far as they are God. Three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so it's important as we come to understand how Jesus relates to God and though we see the word son as the description don't confuse it with what we think of in our own human limitations in relationships but do understand that Jesus related to the father as father and the father the first member of the trinity related to the second member of the trinity as son. Another way to understand, firstborn signifies priority. The Greek word that's used there signifies priority. So Jesus is of priority. Okay? The other word that we have in Scripture that oftentimes uh, kind of misleads, in my opinion, and many of you memorize John 3, 16, and, I, and I'm not here to bash the King James Version, just so you know. But if you memorize John 3, 16 in the King James Version, for God so loved the world, he, what? Gave his one and only begotten. That word begotten can be extremely misleading. It's the word mono, monogenes, okay? kind of like mono genes, and it means unique, one-of-a-kind with a special relationship. When we understand begotten and we just hear it, we think that it means that Jesus came after the Father, but that's not what the original text is saying to us. The original text is simply pointing out that they have a special relationship. And because of that, some people have mistaken God's word and come up with a heresy that Jesus was half God and half man. That's not what the Bible presents. So it's important for us to understand that. And the Hebrew writer is going to continue to build on this and to help the readers to understand. But it can get lost in a way in translation. So I want us to make sure that we catch that. So the Hebrew writer is connecting dots telling us that Jesus is a second member of the Trinity and that 
the second member of the Trinity and the first member of the Trinity relate to each other as father and son, son and father. So he continues on, and here's our word, firstborn. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And so the Hebrew writer gives us another one, and he continues, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So here's our third category, if you will between angels and Jesus. So angels serve the throne. They serve the throne where Jesus sits on the throne. Angels serve the throne. They do what God wants them to do. We see in Hebrews that Jesus sits on the throne. He is king of the kingdom. The angels do essentially one of three things throughout Scripture. We see them delivering a message from God. We see them fighting a battle on behalf of God's people. And we see them worshiping God. They serve Him. Jesus, though, sits on the throne. He's the one with the scepter in his hand, which is kind of like a special stick that says he's the one with the power. He's the one with the authority. Can, can, I, can I preach for a moment? Is that okay? I'm going to do it anyway, so I probably shouldn't have asked. If, if the angels worship him, Shouldn't we? If the angels serve him, bow to him, shouldn't we? Can I just ask you, are you, are you living, are you really living like Jesus is king? Are you really living like Jesus is on the throne? Because when we really live like Jesus is on the throne, it changes things. It brings peace when we don't have peace. It brings hope when we don't have hope. It brings surrender and humility in the place of pride and our own agendas. Are we truly living like Jesus is on the throne? We'll go back to Scripture. Verse 10. He also says, and we, we touched on this, the Hebrew writer touched on this earlier. We'll get back to it now. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Can you think of any other places in Scripture where we have the three words, In the beginning. Yep. Where? Genesis. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, 
God. And what did God do? He created the heavens and the earth. Anybody else think of another passage of Scripture where we have the three words, in the beginning? John, John 1.1. So we have Genesis 1.1 and John 1.1. That's pretty convenient. And John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word. Hmm. Interesting. In the beginning was the word, and we go back and we see that in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer talks about the power of his word. We'll connect some dots. You hang on to that. In the beginning, he continues, you roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they will be changed but you remain the same, and your years will never end. So here we have a, another comparison. The angels are created, while Jesus is creator. Now, we specifically see that in this chapter that Jesus is creator, we, we can figure it out. It's kind of like algebra. We can solve for X that the angels are created because the Hebrew writer is presenting a case and he's comparing and contrasting the two. If Jesus is created, I mean creator, then we know that the angels are not the creator. They must be created. And we see that throughout Scripture. And it's important for us to keep that in mind that unlike the angels jesus is creator and because he's creator he's greater we also understand from this text that jesus has no beginning and he has no end because in the beginning he created in the beginning john 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god we see how Genesis 1.1, uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, and we also see how Colossians ties all of this in together, same as Hebrews, that Jesus is God and that he was part of the process of creation that he spoke and it came to be. Well, we have one more reason why Jesus is greater to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool or for your feet? Or, or excuse me, are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So here we have it. One final one. Angels serve God by serving his people. Where Jesus served by his people. Again, the Hebrew writer talks about Jesus sitting on his throne. The angels serve humanity. I think this is important for us to see as well, that the angels serve humanity. In their service to God, they serve humanity, pointing and helping direct people to salvation. That's part of what they do. where 
Jesus is served by his people. Throughout history, mankind has got things twisted when it comes to angels and think that angels, one, should be worshipped. That they should be looked at as super special and we, we need to pray to angels and different things along that line. And, and as we look at God's word in Revelation, chapter 22, verse 8 and following, we see John the Revelator, the one that, that God has allowed to see, kind of pulled back the curtain and see some things that are just almost beyond description, right? Things in heaven, things about what's to come, and John has been given this tour by an angel, and in John or in Revelation chapter twenty-two, verse eight, John pauses and he's like overtaken by it all, and he goes to bow down to the angel because angels are magnificent, mighty creatures. But the angel knows he's just a creature. He's just created. So the angel says, don't do that. Don't do that. Verse 9, I'm your fellow servant. And then he goes and he says, worship God. Like, I'm your fellow servant. So... I'm going to take a little side note because I think it's important. Not only do sometimes humanity, have we gotten it twisted and we worship angels, we put them on pedestals, etc. Pay more attention to them than we do Jesus. I think sometimes we also get it twisted and we, we misunderstand how angels are created and how humanity is created. And the future, the eternal future for humanity. And so we hear things or we say things like, well, God needed another angel when somebody dies. N number one, it's wrong because God doesn't need anything. Okay. Number two, it's wrong because if God wanted another angel, what would he do? He just speak it into existence, right? He just create it. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that humans become angels. We, we do see that there are times when angels appear to be human. They, they look human-like at least. But they're still angels. They don't really become human and nowhere at all do we see that a human becomes an angel. An angel was created by God with a purpose. Just like humans were created by God with a purpose. When we die, we do not become angels. It's important for us to understand that. I'm sorry if I wreck your nice thoughts and what you want to think about different people, whether it's somebody older than you, somebody younger than you, or whatever it may be, I understand the sentiment, and maybe part of it is just kind of like a figure of speech, and uh, well, I, I don't want to burst too many bubbles, but 
it, I've, this has kind of just been how I am today. I don't know what it is, but I, I was this way in Sunday school. And so, but it, if they weren't an angel on earth, how are they going to be an angel in heaven? Just, just a thought. I mean, you know, you can take that any way you want, but take it with the, the word of God, if you would, please. But here we have the, an outline, right? The difference between angels and Jesus. And what's, what's the conclusion? Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Greater than the angels. But, but what's today's takeaway? If you have the bulletin and there's a spot that says today's takeaway, I'm not going to give you today's takeaway. Uh, that's between you and the Lord. What is today's takeaway for you? I'll give you some possibilities from what we've discussed today. Three things that stand out to me that, that certainly could be a takeaway. They'd be worthy of something to take away. Uh, one, it, it might just be that you adjust how you understand angels. Maybe that's today's takeaway for you. Maybe for some, you find peace and strength and hope knowing that all things are sustained by his powerful word. And I just really skipped by that and should have spent a little bit more time, but you think of the word sustained. And how, how many of you play piano or keyboard? That's why we don't have any pianos or keyboards up here. How many of you are familiar, though, with a pedal that pianos, keyboards have called the sustain? What does it do when you press the sustain pedal? It holds whatever you just played, right? Much like in creation, God spoke it into being, Genesis 1-1, and following. But in Hebrews 1, it talks about everything being sustained by his powerful word. So the takeaway, how might you find peace and strength and hope knowing that all things are sustained by his powerful word. Nothing, absolutely nothing falls apart, nothing stops, but by the word, the powerful word of God. And that all things are held together, all things are sustained, all things are upheld by his word. That should bring you great peace, strength, and hope. Maybe the third takeaway is for you. Surrender to the one who holds the scepter and sits on the throne. We're going to close with one final song. It's a new song uh, for us to sing, but some of you have heard it before. It was actually recommended several months ago by, by Bert. Verse 1 says, How I long to breathe the air of heaven, where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets, to look upon the one who bled to save me, and walk with him for all eternity. The second chorus has these words. So let it be today we shout the hymn of heaven with angels and the saints. Because this is what angels do. They worship God. With angels and the saints we raise a mighty roar. Glory to our God who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy, holy is the Lord. Would you stand if you're able? Father, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. Lord Jesus, we worship you.
as the mighty king, the one true God, the one who has saved us from our sins. May you receive all the honor and glory. I pray this in and for your name.